Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Trust and Believe. I'm your host, Shanti. And today, I have to let you guys know that I'm super excited to talk about a subject that most people would probably want to cringe over. Now, I'm excited to talk about this for two reasons. One, because I've done all the self-work to deal with my sexual trauma and childhood abuse. But number two, our guest that we have today is one of the most incredible people to talk about sexual trauma and sexual abuse. Because while this may make you a little bit uncomfortable, he does it through comedy. And I think it's really amazing. And I think beyond that, we are going to deep dive into the world of sexual abuse and sexual trauma. Not only how to get through it, how to get out of it, how to deal with it, but just being real about it. So get ready to trust and believe. Somebody say it again. This is Sean T, and it's time to trust and believe. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, everybody. I'm here with my guest today. His name is Sebastian Scales. I have to tell a quick story. First of all. I was scrolling through TikTok, you know, during the pandemic, minding my business, and I saw this smile come across the screen. No. While Sebastian has a really great smile, I started <laughs> listening to his story, and it was so similar to my story, and I know a lot of you out there know my story, and it just became so real that I actually was having flashbacks to my own story. And not only was I having flashbacks to my story, there were parts of Sebastian's story that I said to myself, wow, I wonder if I had that strength to do that. And then I had a battle with, well, I didn't have the strength and that's okay. And I came up with all these questions and answers and whatever. And I said, you know what? I just want to talk to this guy because he has a great way of articulating his experience. And I think he's going to help a lot of you today. Sebastian, what's up? What is going on, Sean? Thank you for that lovely intro, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, I'm just so excited to have you here today. And I'm just going to jump right in. 
I would love for you to tell your story and I might interrupt you a little bit, but when you're done, you know, I have some really interesting questions to go <laughs> along with that. So tell us your story. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, the feelings are just so mutual. And uh, yeah, so when I was eight, uh, I, I started getting molested by my best friend's dad. And uh, he originally introduced it as a game, which was called the Wiggle Game. And I know you're familiar with the game uh, introductions. And, and basically, he would come into the room uh, when I would sleep over at my friend's house and wake me up by wiggling my dick. And I, I, at the time, all I needed to know was that it was a game for that to be like enough for me to be like, oh, okay, like, you know, I guess I'm down. Like, I don't really know what's going on here, but it's a game. So I guess it's okay. That was mm. the extent of my thinking as a kid. And when you don't say no the first time, it feels like every time after that is is more difficult because like you already had the opportunity once and now it feels like you kind of allowed this to happen and now i remember thinking to myself if i speak if i speak up people are going to be like well why didn't you say something immediately and then the longer it went on for the harder it became to speak up because i thought that people would think that i liked it and you know it's it's just one of those classic uh child abuse uh survivor guilts that we carry with us later in life where you assume all of these reactions that people are going to have to you talking about your trauma. And we also create these scenarios in our heads as kids for, you know, how people will perceive us and what's going to happen. So that wiggle game eventually progressed more and more into basically you would come into the room at night and just hold my dick. Um, he, he wouldn't, uh, jerk me off. Uh, he never had the courtesy to make me come. And, uh, it was a little bit, uh, it, it was just so confusing. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, like I would get so frustrated with my dick because I was like, I don't like this. Why are you hard? Like it, and it mm. was such a confusing thing because I knew that I wasn't attracted to this guy. But according to my dick, it was like, well, I guess I am and I guess I'm gay. I mean, that was the conclusion that I made at that time. And obviously, when we're thrown into these sexual experiences way earlier than we should be, your mind starts sort of filling in the gaps and trying to rationalize the situation and make it make sense when it's impossible to make sense of. So even though I kind of knew that it wasn't right, there were still things that made me continue to go over there because I didn't know what would happen if I spoke up, but I knew that I would probably lose my best friend. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of enough at that point in my life to be like, I love my friend and I don't want to lose him. So that was kind of the price that I was willing to pay at least for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, it went on until I was 10 and part of the reason why I didn't say something was because I thought that my dad, like if I spoke up, that my dad would try to fight the guy who molested me. And I thought that my dad would lose. So in your head, you know, like these are the these are the things that we come up with and reasons why we can't speak up. And, you know, so when I did eventually tell, uh, I, I told my mom and I made her promise not to tell my dad. And of course she had to, you know, that's, that's part of the, part of the thing. And, you know, we had to go to, we had, they called the police and, you know, I, I literally thought that like, 
if the police were called that they would confront the guy who molested me and they'd be like did you did you touch this kid and i thought he'd be like yeah but like he had boners so like it's it's cool right and i thought the police would be like yeah well no worries then and i thought you know i just i thought that the the erections like were justification for the whole thing and it basically like made me my my sort of gut feelings irrelevant and that made it harder to speak up what i think a lot of child abuse survivors find and, and trauma in general is that when you do sp- start speaking up all of the reactions is, that you thought were going to happen generally are, are not true you, you you certainly will get some people that don't believe you but for the most part everything that i thought was going to happen did not happen including losing my best friend we actually still managed to be friends um and I, i'll get into that but after i told my parents what happened they called the cops the cops confronted the guy uh, he went to jail for a day he had to post post bail, and then we went to court uh, a couple of months after that, and um, that was a huge trip because you know I had to testify uh, in front of like this jury and the judge and just random members of the public who were there because it was just like open to people, which was crazy. Um, and the guy who molested me, you know, in our judicial system, you have the right to confront your accuser in court, even if that accuser is ten. So that, that accuser who was confused because he's like, what the hell is going on? So, yeah. Yeah. Like, I just couldn't believe the scenario. And it was like, you know, I didn't realize that that was going to be part of the experience. But, yeah, I had to basically talk about it. It was like a nine hour deposition. And, um, yeah, they got all, you know, I, I had the prosecuting attorney who basically had me tell the story and then the defense attorney whose entire job is to poke holes in your story. So they, I remember him asking me like how long it went on for, like for each time. And it, it generally would go on for like minutes. I mean, when you're going through it, time sort of warps and you sort of, at least for me, I like played possum and like blacked out a little bit and tried to make this seem like it was as short a time as possible. Um, but I remember being embarrassed by how long I actually knew it had gone on for. And in the same way that I didn't want people to know that I had boners, I also didn't want them to think that I was just letting this go on. So I, I basically was like, yeah, it went on for like, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And then he would basically be like, but do you remember the last time you talked about this? You said that it was 15 seconds. And like, we're literally getting into like the second differences in each molestation instance. And you know, it's it's a crazy thing to expect a child to recount trauma in this way, in this scenario, and to expect like graphic details to come back when our brains are trying to protect us from these things. And we don't want to remember any of this stuff, especially at the time. So it was a it was a wild experience. Um, and the guy uh, did not get convicted which is pretty standard for child molestation cases. You know, most of the time there's no like, quote unquote, like tangible evidence. It's just a kid being like, this guy touched me. And the guy's like, no, I didn't. Um, Which is not really enough to convict somebody in our judicial system. So he was basically just like let off. Uh, And my parents asked me if I wanted to move away because they knew that he would just be around town. And I was like, you know, no, like my whole, all my friends are here. I love it here. And I, I, I didn't want to do that. So 
Um, we did get a restraining order against him. Um, but a condition on the restraining order was that he was still allowed to go to his son's soccer games. And his son and I went to the same high school. So, and we played on the same high school soccer team. So for every high school soccer game, the guy who molested me was in the stands, which was bananas and crazy too, to think like, you know, the people that wrote that restraining order were like, all right, he can't be around you at all, except for one hour a week, he gets to watch you exercise. Like what a, what a concept, you know, like as if I'm going to see him anywhere else. But at any point during that time, were you angry? I was really angry in the time like between when I was 11 and when I got to high school because I wasn't able to hang out with my friend at all. And I always blamed the guy who molested me for like ruining our friendship. And that's why when we actually got to high school and we're on the same soccer team, it was so cool because we had these forced interactions, me and my friend, but he was always cool to me. Like we had like a cordial relationship and we would like party together. And it, that was really relieving for me because I knew that that meant that he believed me. Mm. Um, you know, if he didn't believe me, if he thought I was making it up, he would have hated me. And just he, he didn't have to say I believed you for me to know that he that I that he thought that I was telling the truth. So I had a lot of anger in that interim time frame and it actually manifested in these wild ways like especially when I was getting molested I, I I had some anger too and I would get these crazy back spasms um and and I would be like screaming in the car like on the way to school and on like road trips and family road trips and things and literally like the moment I spoke up those all went away and I remember telling my mom and in that moment just feeling a lot of these pent up emotions of anger and fear and worry all sort of like being lifted and processed just by not being the only one who knows about it and 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 feeling like okay like I'm this isn't going to happen anymore like I'm safe that yeah. made all the difference if something like that happened in my town one everyone would know about the court case of my best friend's dad trying to molest me or not trying to molest me, my best friend's dad molesting me. <laughs> and it would just kind of be weird for him everywhere he went. And where was that odd moment for him? I would say it was a small town. So like everyone knew that this had happened and the vast majority of people were on my side and, you know, were very much like they all believed me. But there were some parents who didn't believe me and would hang out with him and his family at games. Um, they'd still let their kids go over there. And I think that's actually, you know, I, I have this tendency of people pleasing that I've been sort of deconstructing after starting to do stand up about. Um, my molestation and stuff. And I think it stemmed in part from being in these situations where I was around these families and people on the island and seeing these people who were on the guy who molested me, like his side. It felt like there was a war going on between my family and their family. 
And I felt like I needed to get as many people onto my side as possible. And if I didn't, that like my family would lose the war. And so that created this weird dynamic where I felt like I was hyper nice to people mm. um, to the point where I was, it was like a defense mechanism. And yeah, I, I uh, even though the majority of people believed me, it still felt like it was basically just like a big you from whoever would sit next to him at games like, hey, we don't believe you either. You know, he got off. He really did this to me. Those who believe you really hold no weight. It's the people who don't. So you almost have to fall victim to this. You you are a victim and then you fall victim to the justice system letting you down. And now you fall victim to society letting you down. And so it's almost like, well, because they find me to be unbelievable, unreliable, think that I'm lying. Like, what do I have left to prove my side? Like I spent 10 hours in a deposition. So like, maybe I can be nice and maybe these people will believe that like this really nice person is actually telling the truth. You know, like that's what I'm thinking about when I hear that. Cause I'm just like. Yeah, man, it's it's crazy. And that was one of the things that was it was so hard to deal with the fact that he didn't get convicted because I was like, you know, why would I want people to think that this happened? <laughs> you know, like what could because if I'm making this up, there must be some sort of rationale. And there's nothing that my best friend's dad could do to me that would make me say that he touched my dick other than him touching my dick. What's he going to take away my Xbox? Like, I'm not. Right. There's nothing that he could do. Well, it's interesting you say that, too, because I was watching the show Pose. And so one of the actors, one of the scenes was this guy going back to his hometown after 20 years. And it was this, like, really church-going town. And everybody's like. And so his mom, he was molested in, in in this story. He was molested. He told his mom. She didn't believe him. She still stayed married to the guy. And so that, on top of him being gay, he's like, wait a minute. She's like, I think you, she says something like, I, you know, I think you're maybe being gay for attention. And he's like, so do you think that I like going to school <laughs> and having people call me faggot and beat me down? So, like, I'm choosing this for attention? You know, yeah. that's the thing that's just, like, so bizarre. It's, if if I wanted attention, I would, like, Go throw eggs at a stop sign at the corner so people and stay like not say that my best friend's dad was playing with my penis. Like it this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It that's exactly it, man. And it's funny because after I started doing stand-up about it, uh, I put out a recording and I I eventually found out that one of my friends, I became friends with this person in high school, so I didn't know them at the time, but their dad was actually on the jury of my trial. So I sent him uh, the recording and I was like, Hey, here's what's going on in my life right now. Like, I would love to talk with you about what this experience was like for you, because what better material than the people who thought that I was lying? Like, what are you, what are you guys thinking? You know? And uh, so I, I hit him up and uh, we went and got coffee and he told me all about the experience and basically how it wasn't that people did, didn't believe me. It was that they didn't want my friend and his sister to grow up without a father. 
And I'm like, so you guys thought that he was a pedophile, but thought that it would be better for his children to live with a pedophile than not have a pedophilic father. So it was pretty crazy. Um, But that conversation ended up being really cool because he told me that he had been molested and Mm. he was 65 and had never told anybody about it before. And it was just sort of in the flow of conversation where, you know, when you start talking about these things openly in a way that, you know, people can feel that you don't have shame associated with it, it makes it a lot easier for them to share their stories, too. And so he was saying, like, yeah, I was certainly not going to tell anybody about this. And I was asking him, like, how hard that must have been to be on the jury for that and how triggering that probably was. And he was like, yeah, it was terrible. But for him to excuse himself from that, he would have to say that it happened to him and he didn't want to do that. You had just like the maturity and level-headedness and clear-headedness to actually want to talk to him without wanting to walk in and like sock him and um (laughs) and just to sit there and listen and understand because at that point you know you understand in a really odd way for sure and and i should clarify he said that the guy was guilty he voted that he was guilty um it was it was six of the other jury members. So he explained, you know, the the whole dynamics that were going on and how it was basically people being like, this is so clear what happened and other people being like, yeah, but we don't want to break the family up. So fortunately, he was on my side. It would have been certainly tough if he was like, yeah, I didn't believe you either. You know, but the most persuasive side will in a way that determines what the verdict is. And it's so crazy. It honestly makes a lot of sense that these uh child molestation cases don't generally get convictions because our jury system is not set up in a way to convict these people. Once I got to high school and really realized that my friends still believed me, that took a lot of the weight off too. Um, And it was also cool because, you know, (laughs) my, obviously everyone knew that this guy was at the games. And so the parents that believed me would form like this parental wall in front of him and they would stand in front of him at soccer games to try to like block his vision. And at the time I was like pretty embarrassed by that because I was like, can we just not make a big deal about this? Like everybody chill, you know, I really want to pretend like this didn't happen. But in retrospect, I think that really did give me a sense of security. And like, it was really cool to see like, hey, like we've got your back. I hear you speak about this. And while it's comedic, I also find it to be classy in such a different way to talk about it because everyone probably expects you to act a certain way because this happened to you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How did you bridge the way between high school, playing soccer in front of your molester, then having to grow up and deal with, number one, sexuality, because I want to kind of get into that. And yeah. then, and just the therapy part of it to make your way to where you are now, which I think is 
has been therapy for me, like a very funny way to talk about molestation. I mean, it's so great. I want to get to the funny way a little bit later, but yeah. how did you bridge that? All of those little things, you know, work through all of those, those hurdles to get you where you, to where you are today. With the sexuality aspect, you know, I, I hadn't had sexual experiences other than this guy molesting me. So my whole basis for what happened sexually was just this 50 year old man touching my dick and me getting a boner. So like I said, you know, that was a, I was, I concluded that I was gay. And, um, I remember I had a girlfriend, uh, freshman year of high school. And I remember we dated for about a year and I remember her giving me my first hand job. And I was like, Oh, this feels good. No matter who does it. And I was like, "Whoa, wow! What a monumental hand job!" You just you, you make you make me. <laughs> it was crazy, man. And she, you know, she just thought I was having a really good time, which I was. But I was also like, "Oh my god, I'm straight! Like, what a trip!" Yeah. Or yeah, at, at the very least, not just gay, you know. So it was. Honestly, that it, it sounds silly, but that hand job actually provided a lot of clarity because, yeah. again, the molestation never progressed past hand jobs. So in my head, it was like, OK, well, I, I have something to compare that experience to. And it's somebody that I'm actually attracted to who's providing the same physical feelings that I was getting from this guy. So it, it allowed me to sort of step back and not be so conclusive about like, OK, Apparently I'm gay, but like, I'm not attracted to dudes. Like I don't understand what's happening. Mm. So yeah. Shout out to my uh, first girlfriend. Um, yeah. Homegirl uh, helped you out. She gave you that, <laughs> that good euphoric feeling. <laughs> yeah, totally. Basically like after I went to trial between when I went to trial and when I started doing stand up, I didn't want to talk about this like at mm. all. You know, the, I didn't want to talk about it during the trial either, but like, you know, obviously had to. Um, so I, I, and part of that is because of how people normally present the information and, and how people respond to it. Normally, when you tell somebody that you got molested, they're like, oh, my God, like, I am so sorry. Like, I don't see how things could be any worse for you. And it's like, well, now they're pretty bad. Like, I, you know, just a second ago, like, well, I didn't mean to tell you this to get this pity party. And it's not like they're doing that maliciously. It's just the standard reaction. And what I've found is like that makes it so much harder to talk about because again, we're talking about like the guilt that we take on as survivors where we don't want to make anybody else feel bad about what happened to us. Mm -hmm. So if you know that people are going to start cringing and feeling weird about you talking about this, it doesn't make you want to speak up. So that was sort of what originally drew me to stand up uh, was like, you know, I would see these people talking about, you know, Pete Davidson talking about his dad dying or, you know, people talking about the, the worst things in life in a way that makes you laugh. And it just it was sort of one of those things where it was just a feeling that I just kind of followed. The first set that I ever actually did uh, was about molestation. I was living in Manhattan at the time. Uh, I graduated college and then was living there. And something about it i think it's one of those things where like as much as we try to bury these things they just come out eventually like you were saying and i i didn't know what was gonna happen but i wrote a set and uh got on stage and 
pretty much blacked out just like the molestation but i i it, i remember it going pretty well and uh i i finished the set and it was just it was like telling my mom all over again it was this mm. euphoric cathartic release of suppressed emotion that I even though I talked about it in trial and stuff, I didn't really process it at all. You know, I was still suppressing it. So it was this crazy release. And I remember getting out of the comedy club and just like running around New York, just like sprinting. And like it was super maniacal, like I was crying and laughing and like I threw up and like it was just this bananas feeling that really got me addicted to stand up one but also like this new way of processing emotion because you know stand up is like effectively like therapy it's basically just having a conversation it's it's a one way conversation i mean obviously people laugh but you can say whatever you want and so stand up very quickly became therapy for me and fortunately that first time went well because if it hadn't i don't know what would have happened but <laughs> I mean, after that, I bombed for like four months straight. And mm. it was because, you know, I, I didn't know. One, I wasn't okay yet. I was still like in the processing stage of these things. And I felt like I needed to be something other than what I was to make this funny. So I would be like really gruesome and I'd talk about molestation in general rather than like my personal experiences. And I wasn't using truth. I was just using fabrication. And what I learned over that four month time period was like, you don't have to be anything other than who you are to like make this work and to mm. be accepted. And I started going into like, what was I actually thinking at the time? What really happened? And the more I leaned into truth, the more laughs I would get. And the better it would feel for me because I wasn't like presenting this person who I think I need to be on stage in order to be accepted. I was like, here's who I am. And like, here's what happened. And it's it's such a rejuvenating and alleviating feeling to know that you don't you don't have to change like <laughs> and in fact, you will be more accepted uh, just by being yourself. And And the people that don't accept you are the people that you don't want to be around anyway. So they're doing you a favor. For those who are listening to this, I just have my hands up. I'm like, I'm <laughs> looking at Sebastian as he's God. I'm like, praise him. Yes, I agree <laughs> with everything you're saying. <laughs> Thank you, man. So it was like, you know, getting into the getting into the truth of things. And that really changed my comedy. And it made it like I started talking about having boners. And I started talking about how confusing it was. And, you know, it it. It became a lot more therapeutic just and and then it was like okay like i i can actually like do this and mm. the more truthful i was the more people would tell me after shows like you know because basically whenever i do this material now somebody will come up to me after the show and be like hey i got molested too sometimes people have never told anyone about it and it's not just molestation. Like I had a guy come up to me after a show and he was like, hey, man, both of my parents killed themselves when I was eight and then 12. And he said it with like a big smile on his face and was just like ready to laugh about it. And I was like, wow, dude, I don't know your name yet, but it's so nice to meet you. You know, it was just like this absolute trip where I was healing myself and also at the same time having these experiences with other people that were a new level of healing. 
which is like setting other people free and yourself at the same time. And it, it really became very purposeful. And as I was getting better at comedy, more and more people would continue to, to come up to me and, and tell me these things. And so that was where I got the idea for this podcast, um, which I was lucky enough to just have you as a guest on. Um, and everyone has to listen to that episode. <laughs> you have to go to Sebastian's podcast and listen to it. But we'll talk about that later. We'll tell them how to get there. Totally. Going, sorry. No problem. Yeah. So, it, you know, it became this thing where these conversations that I was having with people after shows were like, I realized that this would be really beneficial for more people to see. And I didn't want these conversations to just be limited to the 14 people that were at the show or like whoever happens to come up to me after. So I started recording these podcast episodes and, you know, it's not, it, it, it's called what happened to you and it's all things trauma. And I really quickly realized that people are wanting a new way to approach trauma and it's not just molestation, it's everything. We want to be able to talk about these things in a way that makes us and the people that we're talking to feel okay. And, you know, humor is not for everybody, but the people that it's that that resonate with it, like heavily with it, and it provides this outlet that is hard to find oftentimes. And so... That was sort of, you know, I started that in 2019 and been doing those conversations and stand up ever since. And it's really been like the most purposeful thing that I've that I've felt and experienced. And I eventually got to the point where I was I had a set that I was comfortable enough putting out onto the Internet. And uh, and so I put it out and, you know, immediately people from college were hitting me up. People from high school were hitting me up you know, saying all of these things that had happened to them. And a lot, you know, again, a lot of these people are like, hey, I've never told anyone about this before. And so literally just by seeing somebody else talking about it in this way, it made other people feel like they could do the same. And so I pretty quickly realized like, okay, this is this, I need to get this out to as many people as possible. And that's where TikTok came in. And, you know, I, I was had no idea what I was doing on TikTok. Uh, and eventually I just kind of like figured, you know, why not? Like I, I had made some various different videos, but like, let's give it a shot and see what happens. And so I made a video um, of me doing one of the bits that's in that recording, but just me talking to it, like in a TikTok format. And, um, you know, it went pretty viral. And within a day, I mean, I have thousands of messages from people being like, hey, you know, this happened to me too. All of the same things that were happening after shows were now scaling and around the world, people are hitting me up. And the thing about child abuse and trauma is that like, it's, it, it doesn't discriminate, you know, everyone's affected of all the different possible breakdowns. Everyone experiences these things. And so it was so cool to see like a global impact that one 40 second video on TikTok made in a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very quickly it, it became kind of overwhelming because I was like, all right, well, all of these people, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them were not just telling me, but they were like, I want to do your podcast. And which was amazing. Like, that's exactly what I wanted to happen. But very quickly, I realized like, okay, I don't know how to like prioritize this. Like, okay, this guy got molested for three months, but this chick got molested for two years and it was by her her grandfather or whatever. You know, like I didn't want to be like prioritizing trauma and nor did I want to be like the gatekeeper of all these people looking for an outlet. So 
during that time that the TikTok was going viral, actually, um, this girl, Stephanie, reached out and she was like, hey, let me know if you need any like assistant scheduling work, that type of thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I really do. Like for the first <laughs> time ever, like, thank you. <laughs> so she set up uh, uh, my schedule and basically I, I was like, all right, just open it up. You know, whoever wants to do it can do it. Block off Saturdays. We'll do two interviews a day max and just open it up. First come, first serve. And so she put it out. And within a day, the next two months, every single day, there were interviews. And I was like ec- ecstatic because that's that was the goal, you know. But very quickly, I realized like a lot of these people are literally talking about this for the first time. And it's a very different experience to talk to somebody who's done a lot of processing compared to somebody who's very new to it. And it's not knocking everybody. We're all at different stages. But it very quickly became like Zoom therapy. And I was going to say, not qualified. you a therapist and you're like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, people would be breaking down on these on these episodes and I'd be like trying to make jokes like an asshole, like trying to keep it light, you know, and, and it would it just wasn't working. So I, I sent messages out to everybody and I was like, look, I, I, I need to figure out a, a different way to do this because this isn't sustainable for me. Um, and obviously everybody understood so now there's like an application process or I'll reach out to people directly and and I try to have people on that make listeners feel like um, optimistic and upbeat talking about it. And, you know, generally, if you have comedians or people that can laugh about it, that's really the goal of the show is normalizing conversations about trauma using humor. So that's pretty much what it's been since then. And, you know, I've been putting content out on, on TikTok and YouTube, Instagram, all the, all the spots. And uh, I'm just trying to have as many people see these things as possible and really just to allow as many people to talk about these things as possible. Well, I want to say that I think what's so interesting is so the way you shared your story was through comedy and people reached out and they're like, I want to tell my story. And the way I told my story on TikTok was through storytelling via text. And I got more, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened to you. And I think that both of those things um, create thought process. And both of those things in a way get people to kind of perk up and and think about their lives or think about something because, you know, like I said, I think I I told you on your show, there's a gentleman that I know that saw my story and ended up telling his wife that he had forgotten that that happened to him, you know, because of the way he looks up to me and for you, but most people on me are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Whereas for you, people may have said, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry that happened to you. But they're like, Oh, like if you can tell it like that, that's a really great way to kind of get past it. People would come to your show looking for therapy or a shoulder to lean and cry on. But the flip side of that and the way that you do it is it also allows people to like almost do it in a freedom of like freedom of expression. And in a way, I know I'm saying a lot here. I think what's also really cool about the way that you do it is it, immediately shows what can happen when you allow yourself to know that it happened to you, when you allow yourself to accept that it happened to you, because it's really the ultimate compliment to yourself when you can be like, this happened to me and I can talk about it and I can talk about it in any way because 
I'm either doing the work or I've done the work to try and feel through that. Oftentimes, humor is like the foundation of the conversation, but it's really just the gateway to deeper conversations Mm -hmm. and to say like, you know, once you're laughing about something, it's a lot easier to go into it. There's a quote from uh, Wayne Dyer, which says it's impossible to laugh and be afraid at the same time. So, you know, these conversations, while there are funny moments, a lot of the time they get a lot more serious and deep. But I find that once you're laughing about it, it, it allows this level of acceptance like you're talking about. That's like it's very disarming and you kind of know that like no matter what comes up you're gonna be okay and it really is you're absolutely right man like it's it's acceptance and being able to know that like you are doing yourself a favor by allowing yourself to feel the feelings that are suppressed and it'll allow you to grow and you know you don't have to go do stand-up to do this like like i said stand-up is just a conversation but whoever you're talking to and even if that's just talking with yourself, you know, these these conversations are so essential for healing, especially, you know, if you've never had it before for anybody listening or watching, like feel free to. It's just the absolute best feeling. And you might run into people that don't believe you and you just need to keep speaking up until you find the people that do. Because in the same way that with stand up, like when I was presenting this version of myself that I thought I needed to present in order to be accepted, it's just you're attracting people that don't even know you. that aren't attracted to the real you so the quicker you can sort of step into that authenticity the quicker you can you know surround yourself by people that are going to elevate you and you know we take this weight off of ourselves we all we we have this tendency to mask and this is what i mean about the people pleasing like i just find myself doing it all the time even still and just sort of recognizing like hey i know why i'm doing this and i'm safe and in fact, people pleasing is having the opposite effect most of the time. You know, like mm. <laughs> you could kind of feel it when somebody's doing that to you and it doesn't feel real. And what people really want is real because if you're being yourself, you allow other people to be themselves too. So, yeah, man, and, it's just sort of leaning into the truth. And with that said, Sebastian, I always ask my guests to define trust and believe. And I think. What's really special about your story and what's special about you is that you've talked a lot about acceptance and being a people pleaser and combating those two. So how would you help people really trust and believe in who they are? Everything that you think you need and everything that you're, you're striving for externally in terms of validation or, or feelings, it's all available to you internally. There's nothing that you need from anyone else to feel okay. And, you know, a lot of people ask me about like how I feel about the guy who molested me. And I'm at this point now where I don't feel any negative emotion towards him at all. And, you know, it took many years of, of talking about these things and doing stand up, but the forgiveness is for yourself more than the person that you're forgiving. Because when you harbor these emotions, when you harbor anger or whatever it is, it might be about somebody else, but those feelings are originating in you. You're you're storing them in your body. And I, I would say just sort of trust yourself to be able to heal from whatever you've been through and believe that it is possible 
it's it's not something no matter what you've been through you can get to a point where you are okay and you actually get to a point where you're excited to have new memories come back because it allows you to understand yourself at an even greater level than you did before instead of it being this thing where you're like really afraid to have these experiences and memories come back up it's like oh yeah that happened and i'm okay now and yeah i would i would just say that like you know no matter how long you've been feeling a certain way, no matter how long you've believed yourself to be this person or, or this way or uh, to think of yourself as a victim, you can change that. And um, it's something that I would encourage anybody who, who is feeling down about these experiences or, or is harboring any emotion to just allow yourself to feel it and, and let it go. I now know why I like your smile so much. It's less about the physical smile and more about the fact that you are really working to smile on the inside and it comes out. So, Sebastian, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I know there's a lot of people out there who may not have thought about dealing with their past traumas in a way that allows them to feel a little bit more euphoric or free. And I think you just opened up... uh, a good Pandora's box for people by way of expressing and believing in their emotions. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Sean. You create a fantastic environment that makes it very easy to share these things. And, you know, I really, uh, I really feel grateful to be on here. So thank you for having me. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.